Up next, the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. After this message. Now that doctors and patients have discovered the many benefits of hemp-derived CBD, Alpine Miracle's Nano Emulsion CBD formula is one of the most bioavailable on the market today. It's 100% THC-free, so you can order it online anywhere in the U.S. Order yours today at alpinemiracle.com. Scientists are just beginning to understand its essential role in maintaining optimal health. Get yours today. Use the code REPORTER and receive 10% off. Don't wait. Get it now at alpinemiracle.com. And now, broadcasting on Star Worldwide Networks, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm your host, Snowden Bishop, and delighted to be here today. When Attorney General Jeff Sessions sent a letter to congressional leaders last year calling for Congress to reinstate budget appropriations to enforce federal marijuana policy and regulation states, the nationwide backlash from the booming cannabis industry was palpable. His arcane arguments stirred some members of Congress as well. Lawmakers responded by introducing the CARES Act, which protects medical marijuana patients in regulation states, and since then, a number of bipartisan bills have emerged in both the Senate and Congress with support from a majority of Americans. With Sessions' request unceremoniously rejected by a slight majority, it seemed safe to assume the uphill battle in Congress would be enough to deter him from pursuing the matter any further. For most in the cannabis industry, the momentary silence was enough to ease the jitters and assume that cannabis would be relatively safe to resume commerce full steam ahead. But no sooner did California roll out its adult use legalization did the Trump administration jump in front of the moving train with the announcement that the president's new budget would restore appropriations for the DEA to steamroll enforcement of federal marijuana policy in regulation states. And on the heels of that announcement, licensed couriers delivering a van full of freshly harvested cannabis to a processing facility were arrested and detained in Northern California just hours before the new adult use law took effect. To add insult to injury, the authorities seized and destroyed the precious cargo, which happened to be the entire harvest of a single farm. That farm was licensed to grow and sell cannabis under the state's medical marijuana policy, so it didn't matter that the legalization for adult use was just hours away. Once again, the industry is on notice, but not without growing support in Congress. 69 members of Congress signed a letter to leaders urging them to reject the DEA appropriations, and a new version of the Robacher-Farr amendment was reintroduced this time actually omitting the word medical from the state protection. Meanwhile, there are at least a half a dozen other congressional measures pending with more bipartisan support than ever before. While that might seem like good news, the cannabis industry and enthusiasts would be well served to keep their seatbelts fastened for the time being. Despite the growing consensus from policymakers, legalization is still in for a bumpy ride. It seems there's a veritable black hole in Congress when it comes to cannabis legislation, and despite overwhelming public support, a growing number of states slated to pass regulation in 2018 and discreet nods in favor of cannabis reform on the Hill, it's unlikely Congress will step on the throttle anytime soon. Well, at least not as long as the Department of Justice is being driven by marijuana foes who have friends in Congress not willing to make enemies out of their powerful anti-marijuana campaign contributors yet. That's the topic of today's show, and there really is no one better than today's guest to talk about it. But first, Dr. Brian Donner has our Medical Marijuana Minute. What do you have for us today, Dr. Donner? Thank you, Snowden. The endocannabinoid system is a fairly recent discovery that has opened doors for an entirely new field of scientific study. We are learning that cannabis not only relieves symptoms, but also may have the potential to be curative in some cases. 
More interesting is that cannabinoids, the molecules found in the cannabis plant, are actually very important for optimal human health. Cannabinoid deficiencies are often a common denominator in patients who express autoimmune malfunctions. They are also prevalent in patients that have age-related conditions like Parkinson's disease, as well as neurological disorders like epilepsy. If cannabinoids are vital for human health, you may be wondering how we survive so long without having access to medical cannabis. Now that we know about the existence of the endocannabinoid system, we are learning that healthy people produce their own internal cannabinoids and synthesize these chemicals from other sources such as chocolate, echinacea, and other nutrients. Another fascinating discovery has been that through clinical drug trials, we learn about the effects certain medications have on a variety of conditions. We can document these effects and come up with theories about how systems in the body respond to certain drugs. However, we haven't always known and understood all of the reasons why some drugs work better than others. Take, for example, selective estrogen reuptake modulators that are often used to treat conditions such as breast cancer or osteoporosis. Recent evidence has shown that we may not have understood the complete picture with these medications and that they, in fact, have a clinical effect on the body's own endocannabinoid system and that this effect may produce some of the drug's therapeutic value. Researchers are now finding that there are other classes of commonly used drugs that may work similarly. This is very exciting for those of us who are beginning to fully understand the importance of the human endocannabinoid system. There are thousands of classes of drugs available, and it will be fascinating to study and determine how many of them work because they activate the body's own endocannabinoid system. This also lends credence to the anecdotal evidence suggesting that cannabis is as or more effective and far safer than some of our commonly prescribed drugs. These discoveries also drive home the urgent need for regulation of medical marijuana on a federal level. Lack of clinical trials in the United States is the most common excuse for our government's failure to remove cannabis from the Schedule I controlled substances list. Unfortunately, current federal law prohibits many reputable institutions from conducting large-scale national research studies. Moving beyond the circular arguments can only happen with education and pressure from the public. If you advocate for more medical marijuana research, please contact your representatives as that would be a great place to start. I'm Dr. Brian Donner for the Cannabis Reporter. I'll be back again next week with another Medical Marijuana Minute. Back to you, Snowden. Thank you, Dr. Donner. I'll look forward to hearing from you next week. So let's get started. Our guest is Keith Strop. He's a Washington, D.C. public interest attorney who founded Normal, N-O-R-M-L, back in the 1970s, and ran the organization through 1979, during which 11 states decriminalized minor marijuana offenses. Normal, which stands for National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws, has been a front runner in the marijuana legalization process since states started attempting to adopt regulation. And I have to say, as founder of that organization, you are really a pioneer in this. So, Keith Strop, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Nice to be with you. So you have been on this merry-go-round with cannabis regulation for a long, long time. And I know that you are a self-proclaimed longtime user of cannabis and, of course, an avid advocate. And I think that a lot of people credit you for a lot of the progress that we've seen lately in helping to destigmatize, helping people sort out what the pros and cons are of legalization, and basically giving information to an entire industry that's been really eager to get off the ground. Tell me a little bit about the early days. Well, um, we founded Normal in late 1970, and let me just for a couple of minutes give you some context so you'll know the political climate at the time. Um, I first smoked marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown Law School. Unlike a lot of smokers, I, I did not start early. When I was an undergraduate, I drank more than my share of alcohol, but uh, somehow a friend turned me on to marijuana when I was a freshman at Georgetown, and I've been a regular smoker ever since. Uh, but what caused me to get into the business of trying to impact public policy in this area was I was impacted initially by the war in Vietnam 
and the uh, the need for those of us who were coming out of school about that time to try to avoid being drafted. Frankly, it was a very contentious time. Uh, those who are old enough to remember can attest to that fact. Um, and there were people who supported the war, but there were then, you know, millions of Americans who wanted to stop the war. And when you would go to those anti-war demonstrations, and because I went to law school in D.C., I hope it was easy for me to go to them, uh, what you would notice almost immediately would be there would be lots of people passing joints, hand-rolled joints through the audience. Now, not everybody in attendance, some of those uh, demonstrations had a half million people or so. And certainly not all of them were um, friendly to marijuana, but they understood that what had happened is the war in Vietnam had radicalized a whole generation of Americans, certainly my generation. And once we began to question the government's wisdom on where we were fighting wars and whether this was a war that we wanted to give our life to, um, we began to question other, other policy issues that the government uh, insisted on. And one of the ones that was certainly relevant to my generation was marijuana smoking. People in the 60s and early 70s began to smoke marijuana in large numbers. So uh, I managed to get a job you mentioned at National Commission on Product Safety. That was a presidential commission. I was lucky to get hired right out of Georgetown Law School because it gave me what was called a critical skills deferment. In other words, my draft board thought the work I was doing at this presidential commission was important enough that I should stay with that rather than go to Vietnam. Once the commission closed up, it was only a two-year uh, commission, I was old enough that I could no longer be drafted, so I was free to actually do what I wanted. I had worked around consumer advocate Ralph Nader during that period. Ralph, it was big, the result of Ralph's work that the commission had really been created. It was Senator Warren Magnuson out of Washington State who was the lead legislator, but it had to do with the work that Ralph had done when he came to Washington and wrote the book Unsafe at Any Speed and began to attack uh, unsafe automobiles. Well, I was turned on to this concept of public interest law. Frankly, I had never heard of it before. I thought you went to law school and went back home and practiced law and got rich and had a happy life. I'm not, not quite sure I'd given it much thought. But once I had been introduced to the idea that you could use your law degree uh, not to try to help individual clients or to get rich personally, but rather to impact public policy. I was just absolutely fascinated by that. And so, um, but the issue that I was concerned about was not product safety. So the minute I was free to go out on my own, uh, I gathered some friends and colleagues together and we founded Normal. And at the time we founded it, and I'll take a break here, I realize I'm going on a little long, uh, Gallup Poll had just done their first survey asking the American how many people supported legalizing marijuana. Prior to that, they didn't think it was even important enough to ask. And at that time, when Normal started, only 12% of the country favored marijuana legalization. 88% of the country were opposed to what we were trying to achieve. So you can imagine, um, uh, we we knew we had our work cut out for us. Wow! Yes, I can imagine. And, and you know that in that time frame, a lot of people who were opposed to it had been so influenced by the whole reefer madness, anti marijuana, anti cannabis campaigns. You know, they grew up with that. A lot of people did. Oh, indeed. In fact, um, the problem all along has been people of my generation and older. I'm, I'm 74, and I can assure you that most of my contemporaries grew up believing that reefer madness propaganda. They thought that if you smoked marijuana, it wouldn't be long before you would be a heroin addict and probably uh, dying in, in some dark alleyway with a needle in your arm. Um, there was enormous misinformation, and it was purposeful. It was put out by the Bureau of Narcotics and Harry Amslinger starting in about 1937. And uh, it was in their interest, of course, to uh, highlight or exaggerate the marijuana menace because it meant that they got bigger budgets every year from Congress. And anyone who's ever spent any time in Washington, D.C. recognizes that bureaucracies have a way of growing, and the, the fastest way to grow is to convince the public and to convince the members of Congress that uh, the, the sky is about to fall. Mm -hmm. And so you would have thought during the 30s and 40s and 50s that uh, everybody in America was smoking marijuana and the sky was about to fall. Well, the truth is 
almost never, no one was smoking marijuana. Marijuana smoking back in the 30s and 40s and 50s was primarily limited to Mexican migrant workers and to black jazz musicians. And you can, you can immediately sort of anticipate the racism that went into those allegations. Oh, yeah. Nobody argued when, when Harry Anslinger claimed that you smoke marijuana, you'd be a heroin addict because the only people uh, that smoked marijuana were Mexican micro workers and black musicians, and they weren't represented in the halls of government and were very uh, slightly represented in society as a whole. So uh, during the early part of, of the, uh, this country, when uh, early part of prohibition, I should say, sorry, 1937, um, it was irrelevant to most Americans, and so, so as a result, they believed what the government was saying. It was only in the mid and late 1960s when marijuana began to spread to the white suburban youth, and marijuana smoking began to be associated with the anti-war movement, and you had pictures every evening on the news of anti-war demonstrators burning their draft card in the park, and oftentimes they were also smoking a joint. The marijuana joint became a symbol for opposition to the war in Vietnam. So, yes, when we started out, uh, we realized that uh, it was not possible to change public policy until we first changed the attitudes of a large number of Americans across the country. And so for the first three decades or so of our work, uh, we made progress, but it was progress where we worked our way up from 12% to where I think we had 22%. And then we stayed in the 20s for a while. But finally, along about 10, 12 years ago, I guess really it began to change in about 1996 when California became the first state to legalize marijuana for medical use. And once that concept began to take hold and people began to realize that there were really seriously ill Americans, sick of dying Americans who found marijuana to be the most effective drug they could take. It was much better than the pharmaceuticals with fewer side effects. Um, we began to see the support for uh, the opposition to marijuana decline and the support for at least medical marijuana began to increase. And then from that, we began to move uh, beginning in uh, 2012. We got the first states to go ahead and fully legalize uh, marijuana for all adults, regardless of why you smoke. And by the way, just to bring that around, in the last year, there have been at least three national surveys. Gallup was the first one that showed only 12% support. The latest Gallup survey shows 64% of the American public now support full marijuana legalization. The Pew poll that just came out showed, showed 51, and there was yet a third one that showed, I mean, I'm sorry, 61, and there was yet a third one that showed 61. So roughly, I think it's safe to assume more than six out of 10 Americans now agree with us that we should stop arresting smokers and legalize and regulate marijuana. Yeah, you know, when you started this, you were up against some pretty hefty foes. I mean... Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was uh, just like a year before the Controlled Substances Act actually scheduled marijuana as a Schedule One substance. Is that right? That's correct. And in fact, by the way, there's an interesting little side story to that that most people don't realize. The reason the Controlled Substances Act was passed in, I think it was October of 1970, so it was almost exactly when uh, Normal was founded, uh, it was because... Uh, Former Harvard professor Tim Leary, who you may remember, was famous for trying to convince young Americans to do acid. And the expression was, uh, turn on, tune in, and drop out, if you remember. <laughs> well, I think uh, not too many people took Tim Leary that seriously. But regardless, it was enough that law enforcement certainly went after him. And they ended up busting Tim on a couple of occasions, once coming back from Mexico. And I think he had 50 pounds of marijuana with him or something. It seems kind of stupid to have someone of his notoriety trying to smuggle marijuana from Mexico, but they, he did, and he was caught. And he had, he had the resources to hire good lawyers, and they brought a constitutional challenge to the national drug law that was then in effect, and it was successful. So for, as a result, there were about nine months during the 1970, it was late 69, I think is when his favorable uh, legal decision came down. So there was almost a year where there was no federal anti-marijuana law. Now, it didn't mean that it was a free zone because all 50 states also had anti-marijuana laws. But 
Congress was responding to that that void by passing the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. And when they passed it, uh, they first debated about where to put marijuana on the five schedules, Schedule 1 being the most dangerous, Schedule 5 being over-the-counter drugs, etc. They they indicated that they wanted to hear what the Marijuana Commission had to say. The Controlled Substances Act did two things. In addition to establishing the new Federal Drug Act, it also created the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, another presidential commission. And when it was created, since it was Nixon was the president at the time, none of us really expected much to come out of it. We thought they would simply parrot uh, all of the misinformation of the 30s and 40s and 50s, because after all, and Nixon was the president, he had made it clear he had no use for marijuana at all. In fact, he he uh, connected it to the blacks. He thought that somehow marijuana's smoking was something that caused uh, black Americans to get into trouble. He didn't realize that white Americans were beginning to smoke it as well. Um, well, when that report came back, to our surprise, it wasn't a total surprise because it was a two-year study, and uh, we had an opportunity, I had an opportunity to testify before the commission of one of their three hearings, and several other advocates did as well. And as we got to know, I think there were 13 members of the commission, they were all prominent Americans, as we got to know them better, one of them confided in me that they had. They really were serious about trying to learn about marijuana. The majority of those commissioners had never seen it, never smelled it, and never smoked it, didn't have a clue. All they knew was what they had read about it. So someone had the common sense to set up some private sessions, I think they were on the West Coast, where uh, the commissioners were invited along with a number of mainstream middle-class marijuana smokers. You know, not long-haired hippies burning their draft card, but doctors and lawyers and uh, everyday Americans who, when they relaxed in the evening, enjoyed smoking marijuana. The commissioners were so uh, overwhelmed by what they saw, which was that it didn't cause them to do anything extraordinary. Uh, they might laugh a little bit or they might uh, they might eat a couple more brownies than they would otherwise have eaten. But it certainly didn't cause any of them to do anything scary or frightening or that should cause the federal government to involve law enforcement. So. The commission came back and recommended that, number one, we should eliminate all federal laws for for the possession and use of marijuana in small amounts and for the not-for-profit transfer of small amounts between adults. In other words, they recommended what later began to be called decriminalization. Right. They weren't willing to go as far as to recommend that we establish a legally regulated market and tax it like we're beginning to do now, because politically that just wouldn't have flown back in 1972 and 73 when those reports came out. But uh, the second thing they recommended was that uh, marijuana should be lowered to a much lower schedule because it appeared to have medical use and it did not appear to be very dangerous. Well, Congress simply ignored both parts of that report. In other words, they they refused to decriminalize marijuana federally, and it's still a crime federally. And they left it in Schedule One, even though they had said when they when they created the act, there was a debate in Congress as to where to place marijuana. They said, let's put it in Schedule One until the commission comes back with a recommendation. Well, when the commission came back, of course, they just blew it off. So um, we didn't get everything we should have gotten in terms of public policy out of that marijuana commission, but it was a major step along the road from prohibition to legalization, without question. See, what, what I find astonishing is that with that report from the commission and with the government patent, which happened, I think, a couple decades later for medical use of cannabis, for a number of different things, neurological and immunity and anti-inflammatory, I believe those were the three that the patent was issued for. But not only that, the fact that from the 1960s onward, they had the glaucoma program and were actually giving marijuana to people for medical use under that particular program. So That's true. Now, by the way, just to, if I may intercede, that was set up as an experimental program. It was not an ongoing program in which anyone who suffered from glaucoma could necessarily participate. But it was at least a research program, a research project. And as a result, you're right. I think at one time there were 33 or 35 patients who had been 
uh, approved and who were given uh, marijuana rolled into joints shipped to them by the federal government. The federal government grows marijuana for research purposes at the University of Mississippi. Uh, so there were at one time 35, I think. Today, I believe there are only three of those people still alive. Yeah, I read that somewhere recently. But the thing that just really boggles my mind, and forgive me for being a little too logical about it, but how is it that Congress and the Department of Justice has been so successful at carrying on the hypocrisy despite the letter of the law, which is that Schedule One drugs have absolutely no medical use and a high potential for abuse. How is it that for all of these years, they have managed to keep that policy in place? I mean, but, and your well, lawyer is like, I how many people have sued your question them? <laughs> is that it's been a political position, not a, a medical or public health position. Almost everyone involved in public health would have told you two or three decades ago that there may be some risk to smoking marijuana, but it's not nearly as dangerous as alcohol or tobacco, for example. And they would have all agreed to that. But the political, the politicians who control a good bit of the marijuana policy, certainly on the federal level, uh, there was a symbolism to keeping marijuana not just illegal, but on Schedule One. It was to reaffirm that it was reefer madness. And remember, those of us who were avoiding the war in Vietnam, we thought it was wonderful when we saw those anti-war uh, activists uh, burning their draft card and smoking America uh, and smoking a joint in the park. But to tens of millions of older Americans who were more traditional and who supported the war, marijuana became a symbol to them that represented young log hair radicals who well, they ought to get the hell out of the country. You know, if they don't love America, leave America. That, I think was what they used to tell right. us. So a lot of that uh, bias and prejudice that still exists today among some older Americans still has to do with that sense that if you're a, a conservative American, you must be against marijuana. If you smoke marijuana, you must be a, a radical lefty. Of course, it's not true today. Marijuana smokers, there's something like one out of two adult Americans have smoked marijuana at some time in their lives, and about 34 million smoked it just in the last year. And of course, they come in all kinds of political persuasions and races and anything else. You, you can't uh, tell anything about a person simply because they smoke a marijuana cigarette when they relax in the evening. But for a lot of Americans, that symbolism is still difficult for us to get over. Yeah, and I, yeah. I think that those numbers would skew upward if you really consider the people who wouldn't be willing to admit that they actually oh, of course, partook. Of <laughs> but Can you imagine a government survey? The guy calls you up on the phone and says, I'm from the federal government. Do you smoke marijuana? Right. <laughs> I mean, who in their right mind would say yes? And Only you know, a few fear of having us. some black SUVs show up on their doorstep. But, but I think that it's also really interesting that Nixon himself, by his own admission really perpetuated that myth about the hippie and the anti-war movement and i read it recently it was an interview with ehrlichman it was it was done quite a while ago obviously but he was saying that they would sit in the office and say you know do we know that marijuana is harmless and do we know that there is medical use and do we know that it's not going to lead to other harder drugs yes of course we knew that and well, you know, part of what's interesting when you actually read those transcripts is uh, the incredible uh, anti-Jew position that Nixon had. He he would say to his own uh, aides, Ehrlichman and Haldeman, who were both Jewish, he would say during some of those discussions on marijuana that, you know, it's all those Jewish psychiatrists that favor legalization. We got to get rid of them. I mean, it was it was this crazy hatred coming out of Nixon. But of course, those who are old enough to remember Richard Nixon, he was a hateful man. Yeah, well, and doesn't history sort of repeat itself? Well, we're back to Sessions now. Sessions is the closest we, we get to a Nixon today. Uh, you know, those of us who live and work in Washington, we've known Jeff Sessions for a long time. And uh, we remember when he was 
appointed to be a federal judge, and he, he couldn't even get approval. At that time, the Senate rejected him because he was such a racist. Right. But he nonetheless got elected for Senate uh, several terms, five or six terms. And so now you get, you get uh, President Trump nominates him for attorney general. And we knew once that happened that we were in for a challenging uh, couple of years because uh, there's nothing Jeff Sessions loves to talk about more than his hostility towards marijuana and marijuana smokers. He doesn't like the idea of, of uh, uh, focusing on more serious crime. He thinks marijuana smoking, uh, he believes in what's sometimes called the broken windows theory of crime. And that is that if you don't enforce as, str as strict as possible the minor offenses, then the whole neighborhood goes to hell. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, he was also very famously quoted, and I might be paraphrasing, but he said something to the effect he thought that the KKK was actually okay until he learned that some of the members smoked marijuana, something to that Oh, that effect. was Sessions. Yes, indeed. He yeah. said uh, two things that, that I always remember. That one uh, came from a few years ago, and he now likes to say that he was joking, but at the time, it's clear he was not smoke, uh, joking. Uh, and he literally said that at a public hearing at some point that uh, he, he used to like the KKK until he, uh, until he learned they smoked marijuana. More recently, this was only about two or three weeks before he was actually approved as, as U.S. Attorney General, he said at a public hearing, good people do not smoke marijuana. Yeah. Think about that. What the hell is he saying? I mean, you know, alcohol kills, I don't know what, uh, 400,000 people a year in this country, something like that. Tobacco kills well over that. And uh, marijuana's never killed somebody in the history of mankind. But he's okay with people drinking alcohol or smoking tobacco. But somehow, if you smoke a marijuana cigarette, that means you're not a good person. Well, and, not and I'll to, tell you, that just shows the, the, the kind of hostility that emanates from that man. Yeah, well, not to mention the opiate crisis. You know, it's like, okay, um, being completely strung out on Oxycontin is okay. <laughs> so well, and of course, there are all kinds of recent uh, studies. Just in the last year, there are three or four that show that in the states that have legal medical marijuana, you have lower opioid abuse. Right. People switch from the opioids, which are hurting them, over to marijuana. Um, and uh, he just, even though the data demonstrates that without question, he will not consider that as an alternative policy to locking opioid users up. Yeah, well, I've interviewed a couple of doctors who specialize in opiate abuse and um, pain management, and they have said, without waiver, they have said that, that those who use cannabis are less likely to titrate up to higher doses of opiates, number one. But number two, when you introduce cannabis to an addict, an opiate addict, it affects their receptors in such a way that they stop craving the opiates. And I, I mean, several medical professionals have said to me that they really believe that cannabis has saved the lives of a lot of people who otherwise might have just overdosed and they wouldn't be with us anymore today. I, I think there are many uh, professional medical uh, medical professionals who would agree with that statement. One of the things that makes it a little difficult when you get that argument is you realize that one of the industries that benefits most from marijuana prohibition are drug counselors <laughs> and drug anti-drug programs. You know, if you've got t a teenage son who you find out smoking marijuana when he's 16 or 17 or 18 and you're upset about it, one of the options, if you're a middle-class family and you have plenty of money, is go spend five or $10,000 and put them in one of these anti-drug programs. Well, they're totally ineffective. They don't have anything, you know, what, whatever impact they have ends the minute the person is released from that 30 days, however long he's in the program. And uh, in the meanwhile, meantime, you've got this whole industry that's been built up on the need to always have large numbers of young Americans who are going into drug treatment. Now, if it were opioid treatment, I understand. You, you very well may need professional help. And the same thing for methamphetamine and a number of other drugs, but not marijuana smoking. That's absurd. Yeah. Well, and another industry that similarly banks on prohibition is the private prison industry. 
Oh, indeed. And uh, not just the private, but the prison guards, period, in the state of California, where they have both private prisons and uh, public prisons. The prison guards union is the largest single lobby in the state of California. And they are incredible. They spend incredible amounts of money to try to keep marijuana illegal. Now, uh, they lost. You know, we, we won that battle finally about a year ago in California. And just this January 1st, they began to implement full marijuana legalization. But we would have won that in 10 years ago in California, but for the prison guards union. And again, it's a jobs program for those people. As long as they have marijuana prohibition, they have more and more business coming their way. Yeah. And then we haven't even gotten into like the pharmaceutical companies themselves. <laughs> well, that's right. You know, uh, obviously the pharmaceutical companies are uh, biting at the bit to get into the legal marijuana market, but they don't want to they don't want it to be smokables. The influence they seem to be having that, that is most evident for us is they try to convince legislators who are confronted with constituents who, you know, they have cancer, they have AIDS, they have MS, they have all kinds of serious diseases. And marijuana is clearly helping these people. And so when those families approach their, their elected officials and, and tell them that, uh, after a, a time, the elected official has to start to say, wait a minute here, what's the deal? Well, what the pharmaceutical folks do, they step up and say, oh, well, I think they're right. There are some ingredients in marijuana that may be helpful, so we're going to isolate those and sell you a pharmaceutical version. And there, in several countries now, uh, there is a drug uh, sold by GW Pharmaceutical called Satifax, and it's an attempt to provide the most active ingredient, THC, uh, as a, a substitute for marijuana. But it's not the same. Marijuana has over 100 active ingredients. The, the major two are, are uh, CBD and THC. And CBD tends to have more to do with the medical application. THC has more to do with the intoxicant uh, effects. But what all of the research shows is you can't just do CBD alone. It has to have a, a similar amount of THC to maximize the medical impact of the drug. So, uh, so far, uh, I don't think those pharmaceutical drugs are going to be successful. That doesn't mean they won't keep trying because they're major corporations with billions of dollars to spend. But I think in the end, most Americans who enjoy smoking marijuana are going to prefer to either grow a couple of plants themselves or go down the street to a marijuana retail outlet and buy some marijuana that's been tested in a laboratory. They know the THC strength. They know the CBD strength. They, they know there's no molds or pesticides in it. Uh, as a former consumer advocate prior to normal, I can tell you that those are the issues that my organization has always been interested in. But we couldn't get to them until we finally stopped arresting smokers and started establishing a legally regulated market. But today, in the eight states, now nine, including California, that have fully legalized marijuana, uh, there's no risk at all because the marijuana they're selling has been tested in a state-certified laboratory, and you know exactly what you're getting, and you know it's labeled accurately. Yeah. Well, and the other thing about Sativex, too, is they managed to get the molecule THC, even though it's a synthetic version of it. Um, yeah. They managed to get it, or not descheduled, but rescheduled into, I think it was Schedule 3. Which three, I, that's right. That's which right. I found really another another height of hypocrisy, if you will, because, you know, here we have the reason that marijuana is illegal because it's a psychotropic drug that gets hippies high or migrant farm workers. But the THC is the molecule that makes it that quote unquote dangerous drug that's going to make white women go crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, know, and that's uh, what's in uh, Schedule uh, Three. And men. yet right. the the benign the benign molecules are are still in the Schedule One as part of the whole plant. And then what you must have been rolling your eyes when you saw the the DEA's registry go across everyone's desk around January of last year. Uh, talking about CBD extracts now being assigned their own numerical code in the Schedule 1. I mean, give me a break. Are you serious? What well, you know, it was interesting. There was enormous confusion in the culture, in the marijuana culture, as to whether CBD was or was not illegal for some right. time. And so anytime you have 
uh, uncertainty in the law, you, you have a lot of people who step forward and, and start filling that void. And so you can go to the Internet even today and you can find 40 or 50 different companies who will sell you CBD extracts. And it says legal in all 50 states. Right. Well, in fact, CBD has never been legal because it's a component of marijuana and marijuana and all of its components have always been listed uh, by the DEA on the on the Controlled Substances Act. Now, you're absolutely right. What happened was because there were all these people selling CBD extracts, uh, you know, online, uh, DEA finally decided they had to clarify the point, and they did come out about a year ago and do that. You can go to the DEA website today, and you will see that CBD is on the, the home page, clearly listed as a federally illegal drug right but uh, so I, I have to I, I probably get three or four calls every day from people saying what's the deal is this legal or not <laughs> right but you know isn't it open to interpretation because the ninth circuit court of appeals when they when the dea was sued and they lost and then they appealed and then they lost that ruling that ninth circuit ruling doesn't that supersede dea federal policy when it comes to hemp extracts you know, I'm not sure that I'm familiar with the, the specific Ninth Circuit case you're talking about. I can tell you that uh, certainly the Ninth Circuit has been active on marijuana decisions. All of the decisions that were coming out of California for a long time there uh, were terribly important as to whether we were our side was challenging whether the federal government even had the authority to regulate or to criminalize conduct that was totally within a state. There was no interstate commerce. People right. don't realize this unless they've had some reason to have legal training, but a state government does not have to justify passing a criminal law. They have inherent powers to pass criminal laws. So if a state legislature wants to say it's illegal to smoke marijuana, they can do it. Now, the federal government doesn't have that inherent police power. They have to justify it on some specific provision in the federal constitution. And the one they've always used for all for decades and decades, certainly uh, all during alcohol prohibition and in marijuana prohibition, uh, was the interstate commerce clause. If it impacts interstate commerce, then the feds have can justify legislating in that area. Well, in those two California cases that came out in the mid-90s, they involved two women who one had grown, I think, two marijuana plants herself, literally nobody else involved other than a caregiver may have helped her, you know, dig the, dig the earth out and, and water the plants a few times. There was no money traded hands and it didn't cross state lines. The other one, the woman had a caregiver who grew it for her. And again, no money traded hands and nothing crossed the state line. Yet the Supreme Court held that the federal government does have jurisdiction under the Interstate Commerce Clause. Now, having said that, they also found that the state has concurrent jurisdiction. So that's why we're in this really kind of confusing state of affairs where, on one hand, yes, it is illegal under federal law, but yet California does have the right to legalize it under state law. Now, that, that's going to be resolved, I, I am quite certain, over the next five, six years. And it'll be resolved in our favor. The federal government will do in marijuana what it did with alcohol. It will simply back out of the picture and allow the states to do whatever they want. And no one is arguing that the federal government should dictate that every state has to legalize marijuana. Those states that want to maintain criminal penalties certainly have the right to do so. That was the same thing with alcohol. At the end of alcohol prohibition, several states... Uh, it was several years before they ended their alcohol prohibition, and there are still counties in, in several states, including Alabama and Mississippi, where uh, you can't get a drink of alcohol unless you belong to a private club, because technically they're still dry counties. Right. So you will have some system like that with marijuana. There, there will probably always be a few counties in the South where you will not be able to buy legal marijuana but uh, most of the country, and certainly every state, will have legal marijuana, I think, within six, eight years. Yeah. Well, one could hope. But it's still, uh, it, for anyone who really hasn't delved into all of the very reasons that we talked about why marijuana is still illegal, and, you know, all of the hypocrisy in the law, I mean, it's such a fascinating study. 
And I have to applaud you for all of the work that you've been doing over these last decades, because, you know, I think without people like you, we wouldn't be anywhere near where we are right now. And I think that legalizing cannabis is so important on so many levels. But let me ask you this. How do you think that the states or the federal government, if they should ever change their mind about cannabis, how do you think that they should separate out the medical use from the from the recreational use? Because I've I've heard a lot of people express concern about the medical the the progress and the medical developments um, really kind of taking a back seat if all of the states wind up legalizing for adult use first. Well, I th- here's what I think. Uh, so far, by the way, every state that has fully legalized marijuana has first legalized medical use for a few years to sort of see how they feel about it. How's the system working? Is it causing any unintended consequences? And then after having that experience, they begin to move forward and realize that There's no reason to limit it just to medical use. If you fully legalize marijuana for all adults, then the only thing you really need for medical use, two things I would say. One is you would still need a small program for children because any recreational program is going to be limited to those 21 and above, whereas uh, marijuana is particularly effective for Dravet syndrome and other forms of epilepsy that are pro- primarily limited to young children. So you will, you will always need a, a medical marijuana program for young children. And secondly, uh, with medical marijuana in most states, there is no sales tax, where, as with recreational marijuana, pretty healthy sales tax, some states as high as 30%. Uh, Now, we have to be careful because if the states get too ambitious about how much tax they want to raise, what they'll do is they will leave the black market in a thriving situation. You know, if you have increased demand, but the price gets too high on the legal side, people will continue to buy on the black market. And one one of the major purposes of legalization is to end the black market and bring the market above ground. Uh, But, as I say, it seems to me it would be simple enough. In fact, I think California may have included this in their recent change, where medical patients, I believe, uh, will not pay the sales tax, but recreational uh, 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 smokers do. I know in Colorado, for example, that's the situation. Now, in Colorado, it's kind of strange because you could go in a dispensary, and on one hand, it's for patients, and the other hand, it's for just adults in general. We all have access to the same marijuana, but they don't pay sales tax and we do. It seems to me you could actually sell them out of the same wing. You don't have to have separate wings. Uh, but, uh, but I do agree that we need to make sure that we don't inadvertently undermine the important medical marijuana market when we legalize marijuana for the rest of us who simply enjoy smoking it. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind because I actually wrote down how many states, um, I believe there are, there are 10 states considering medical, uh, nine states that are considering moving from medical to adult use, um, either in ballot initiatives or in legislation. I may be wrong about that. I'm not sure. Well, by the way, if you, uh, one thing you may have noticed up till this point Every state that has legalized marijuana for recreational purposes or for personal use has done it by way of the voter initiative. We haven't had sufficient support among elected officials to do it by way of the state legislature. And the reason that distinction is important is only half the states offer a voter initiative as an alternative to change public policy. In the other half the states, it just doesn't exist. Well, I'm happy to say this year, We are, well, we're probably this very week, we're going to have the governor sign the bill in Vermont. It might be early next week, but both houses of the legislature have passed it. That's full legalization. That'll be the first state legislature to do it. Rhode Island is very close. New Jersey is almost certainly going to do it this year. Uh, Connecticut is close. So, I mean, there's a whole group of New England states that I would expect are going to legalize marijuana by way of the state legislature this year. And that really opens up the rest of the country uh, from our perspective. Yeah. And I think that uh, the voters in New Jersey were lucky to get uh, Phil Murphy on board because he really, <laughs> he really so. is a, a friend Christy to the movement. Marijuana is Jeff Sessions, maybe more so. I mean, he's really a, a, a marijuana reefer maniac. 
but the new guy coming in is terrific. He has made it uh, one of his big planks that he was going to legalize marijuana among the first things he did, and he's staying with it right now. We fully expect that before this year is done, New Jersey will have approved full legalization of marijuana. Yeah, that, that'll that be great for the people of New Jersey. Cause, uh, New Jersey was one of those anomalies where they had a very, very conservative stance because of the governor, because of Christie. But yet the majority, the vast majority of people living there were in favor of at least medical. Vast oh, yeah, no, no, I mean, the polls showed, like, you know, showed we have a majority support for full legalization and have had for, I don't know, six or eight years in New Jersey, but right. we couldn't get around Chris Christie. We, we, in fact, we even passed it, I think, through one house of the legislature, but uh, we certainly didn't have enough support to override a veto, so that was never a possibility until we got rid of him. You know, again, when you when you change policy that's been in place for 75 or 80 years, you got to realize that almost everyone alive, they've never lived other than under marijuana prohibition. So it's not shocking that it frightens people. It seems like a big step, and they are worried about unintended consequences. We did, we did exit polling uh, after uh, uh, the last, not, not the California initiative that passed, but the one four years earlier that failed to pass. Um, they, they did exit polling, and they found that those people who opposed legalization in California at that time were primarily concerned about two issues. One, they were concerned there might be an a, a uptick in adolescent marijuana smoking, and that's something all of us would rather not have happen. And secondly, they were worried about marijuana smokers driving on the road when they were impaired. Well, both of those, we're happy to say, uh, we now have a five-year track record in both Washington and Colorado, and we'll soon have a a similar track record in uh, Oregon and uh, Alaska. Uh, And there has been absolutely no increase in adolescent marijuana smoking in either state since they fully legalized marijuana. And the reason is, on a black market, they don't ask for an ID. The, the, the dealer who's taking a felony risk to sell you marijuana doesn't care whether you're 15 or 55. Uh, whereas when you legalize it, they, they can't buy it unless they're 21. Now, I know, just as uh, with alcohol, there will be a few instances of where someone will get a fake ID. But let me tell you, uh, the, the federal government actually surveys adolescents and their attitudes about drugs every year in a survey called Monitoring the Future, done by the University of Michigan. And every year they ask them whether it's easier to get alcohol or marijuana. And this was, they started this back before any state had legalized marijuana. And the kids always said it was easier to get marijuana because they didn't need a fake ID. So at any event, that was one legitimate concern people had. But I think with our five-year track record now in Colorado and uh, Washington, we have pretty much answered that to their satisfaction. The other question was they were worried about impaired drivers on the road. And again, that's a legitimate concern. None of us want to see highway traffic fatalities shoot up because of marijuana smokers. But again, that's a little naive when you realize that there's something like 35 million Americans smoke marijuana in the last year. The idea, do they, do they think we've all been walking? Do they think we haven't been driving? <laughs> you know. Uh, now, I would tell you that it's better for people not to smoke and drive for about an hour to 90 minutes. There's a period, roughly 90 minutes, when the, the research shows that it does impair some of the skills that you need to be a safe driver, your short-term memory loss, those sorts of things. Uh, it's some of the same things that uh, recreational smokers enjoy when they're sitting around listening to music or talking to their friends, but you don't want to experience that when you're driving. Uh, but ha- we're happy to say there's been no uptick in DUIDs in the states that have legalized marijuana. Now, I don't mean that there's been any uh, significant lowering of those either. And I'm sure that we need to continue to educate marijuana smokers as to what is safe behavior. Most people don't want to hurt themselves. So uh, my advice to people, you know, don't smoke a joint and get behind the wheel of a car. If you're going to smoke a joint, give yourself an hour to an hour and a half before you get behind the wheel of a car. But at least with those two concerns pretty well answered by the track record in the two states that have legalized marijuana now for five years, um, I, I think we're pretty set to move forward with legalization. I would think so. Yeah, it's 
I'm thinking too with the driving, there's actually an issue that probably will come up quite a bit. And that is that while somebody may not feel inebriated by cannabis a day after they've participated in smoking it or, or using it for medical use or, or whatever, but it stays in your system for three weeks. You know, how, yeah. how are states going to, how are uh, law enforcement officers or traffic control officers going to reconcile that for people? Because well, that, that's a, a legitimate issue, and uh, there, there's a lot of attention being spent on that right now. Uh, right now, what you have is you have sort of three categories of states. You have a few states where they have picked arbitrarily a THC limit. They, I think it's four nanograms in most of those states where if you have four nanograms or more of THC in your blood, when the police pull you over, they first test you for alcohol. And if you don't test positive, but they think you were acting as if you were impaired, they test your blood for THC. And if you have four nanograms or more, then in those states, you are deemed to be guilty of a DUID without any actual showing of impairment. There's another category of states that actually have what's called a zero tolerance, where uh, if you have any THC in your system, you are guilty of a DUID, even if the last time you smoked was three weeks ago. And again, if you're a long-term smoker, you'll test positive for days and sometimes even weeks. It doesn't mean you're impaired. Now, I am happy to say that the majority of states now, or about half the states probably, uh, and it seems to be the trend, is they are beginning now to work on tests for impairment. All of us agree we do not want drivers on the road who are impaired, and it doesn't matter whether you're impaired with THC or alcohol or prescription drugs. And so that's that's really the answer to that problem. Right now, uh, what, a, what an officer can do in any state, they can pull you over if you're driving in an erratic manner or if they for otherwise think that you're acting impaired, and if you don't test positive for alcohol, they can certainly test you for marijuana. And if they if they have their camera on, for example, in the car, and they can show that you were driving in an erratic manner, you can you can be convicted because they can show impairment. And that's what we really need to get to. We need to get to where we don't pick an arbitrary level of THC, but that we do weed out those people who are driving in an impaired manner. Yeah, well, like alcohol or like taking opiate drugs for pain or, or whatever, you know, people need to use their own discretion. And, you know, it's, there's no harm in legalizing, too. This is something that I've heard a lot uh, from people who are policymakers and just advocates and longtime supporters of the movement like yourself that, you know, legalization, there's there's not any harm that's going to come to society unless someone involves another person. And the same with alcohol. You know, people can drink themselves silly, and as long as they're not driving a car and turning it into a lethal weapon, it really is is harmless to anybody but the user. No, I c- agree with you. In fact, I often tell people, that when I'm, if I'm someplace where I've been asked to give a talk or something, Um, You know, I'm an enthusiastic marijuana smoker. I really enjoy smoking marijuana. And most evenings when I get home from work, uh, I roll a marijuana cigarette, pour myself a glass of wine and watch the news. I'm a news addict. You know, I watch all three networks. I live here in D.C. The rest of the country tunes out, but we still watch the news. Yeah. Uh, But when, when it gets down to it, this issue is important not because it's fun to get high. It's important because it's an issue of personal freedom. It's none of the government's business whether I smoke marijuana or why I smoke it, so long as I'm not endangering anyone else. Yep, that's exactly what I was getting at, too. And you're absolutely right. So a matter of personal freedom. Um, I'm getting the signal that it's time for us to start wrapping this up. (laughs) (laughs) Keith, thank you so much. Um, This has been quite a conversation and uh, very enlightening and I learned something new, a lot of things new today, which is, you know, it's hard to do because I'm constantly <laughs> studying this topic. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I, I apologize if I got a little long-winded, but uh, it's a topic that I, I've spent a good portion of my life working on, and um, I, I knew we were going to win it because we could see demographically, even back 10, 15 years ago, that 
Uh, we were gaining support among younger Americans. It was the older Americans who were opposed to what we were proposing. And so we could see that ultimately our opposition were going to retire and die off and be replaced by younger people who were on our side. But what I wasn't certain was that I would live long enough to see it. And it really has been exciting to have that privilege. Yeah, well, you're living proof that persistence pays off. So, you know, from from all of us who really believe this movement is important to human health, it's important to our personal freedom, it's just important for America and our economy and social justice and everything else. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for all of your work and thank you for being here. Okay. So once again, it is time to bring this show to a close. I'd like to personally thank again my guest, Keith Strop, for sharing his insights and vast knowledge with us today. If you want to learn more about Normal and the work that he's doing there over the last few decades, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode, and I will post his bio along with information about Normal and link to the website. We have a lot of others to thank. First, I would like to express our gratitude for our radio sponsors, Alpine Miracle and Health Terra, and Compassionate Certification Centers. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank Dr. Brian Donner for our Medical Marijuana Minute update, Eric Goodall, the composer of our beautiful theme song, Evergreen, our producer Ed and engineer John and the team here at Star Worldwide Networks for making us shine, and to Society Bites and XRQK Radio Networks for sharing our show. And last but not least, thanks to all of you for listening around the nation. Please join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop, and until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Everything's coming a compelling interview with the former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox.